have your Bibles with you this morning, open up to the book of Luke. If you don't, that's all right. You can follow along on the screen, or you can always just listen along as I read. But Luke chapter 10, if you would follow along, starting in verse 30. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them up. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Now, here's a story that many of us have heard, probably even several times, but just in case you haven't, I want to kind of catch you up to speed, give you a little bit of context. So seeing the road on the way from Jericho to Jerusalem, the holy city where the temple is located, and this is notoriously a, a dangerous road. There's lots of twists and turns and caves and mountains and hills, places where robbers could hide. So people would hear this and know, well, that's a dangerous road. Enter scene character one, our victim, a Jewish man leaving Jerusalem. So he's clearly the good guy. He's probably in, probably been worshiping in Jerusalem, so doing the right thing. He's done nothing wrong. But as he's traveling, he's attacked by these bandits and essentially left on the road for dead. Enter character two. By chance, a priest, a holy man, a, a fellow Jew. This is the kind of person that everyone would expect to stop and help, because that's his job, isn't it? The pastor is supposed to care for people. And according to Pastor Jared's message last week, they should really be the first ones to be willing to jump in and get their hands dirty, because that's what it means to be holy. But for reasons we don't know, he doesn't stop. In fact, he walks to the other side of the road, and then keeps on going. He doesn't even afford this man the time to check and see. Is he alive? Is he dead? Did he just get really tired on the way and fell down and hit his head on a rock on the way down and somehow lost his clothes in the process? He doesn't know because he didn't stop to check. He just walked on by and kept on going. He sees a man in need, doesn't stop, just keeps on walking, doesn't give him the time of day. 
overseeing character three. Another holy man, so already hopeful, but perhaps a little lower on the totem pole. He's a temple assistant, a Levite, someone who helps in the temple, so also a Jew, and someone who we, again, would expect to stop and help. But his response is perhaps even worse, because he walks over, sees the man, gets up close, inspects him, realizes that he's, he's not dead, he sees him, he can probably tell that he's breathing, that he's still alive. He looks at him, and then he walks to the other side of the road again and goes on his way. And he's decided this man's not worth his time. So we've got the first man who's, who's decided that he's not going to give him the time of day, and the second man who decides he's just not worth his time. And you're seeing character four. And this is perhaps, at least to the people hearing this story initially, the most surprising character in the story, because he is not a Jew, he's a Samaritan. And it's important to understand for those who don't know this, Samaritans and Jews do not get along. They, they see each other, Jews see Samaritans as, as dirty, disgusting, unholy dogs, basically. I mean, the man who Jesus is telling this story to, when Jesus goes back and asks, not who was the neighbor, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He just says the the one who gave him mercy, like it's a bad word. He can't even say Samaritan. So we would expect this Samaritan to respond at very least the same way that these first two men have. We would expect him at least to walk onto the other side of the road and keep on going. I mean, he's a Samaritan after all. Surely he's not gonna give him the time of day Surely he doesn't see this man as worth his time. So imagine the surprise then to Jesus' listeners when this man is the hero of the story. The one who actually does stop and help the Jewish man left for dead. But I want you to notice how he helped him. It says in verse 34, he soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them up. Which, I mean, even that in itself is, is certainly more than anyone should have expected from a Samaritan. But okay, he, he soothes his wounds, uses oil and his wine, and then it says he put him on his own donkey, and he takes him to an inn, and he took care of him. And he tells the innkeeper, hey, here's some money. If it costs more, just let me know. I'll give you more. And then... He goes on his way. This man has gone out of his way to help a man he didn't know and that nobody would have expected him to help, withholding no expense. He's given him his oil, his wine, his donkey, his money, and perhaps most valuable of all, he's dedicated about a half a day of his life for a man that culture would say he's supposed to hate. 
Now, that to me speaks the highest volumes of his compassion, the fact that he would give up his time to a man he could have easily just passed on by. See, because oil and wine, okay, pour it out, use it up, whatever, you can always get more. And the donkey, it's clearly not hurting the donkey. The donkey's just being a donkey, doing what donkeys do. And he puts him on the donkey and takes him. The donkey's not hurt by this. And okay, so the Samaritan has walk and his feet are maybe sore. All right, well, he'll just prop him up when he gets to the inn. No harm, no foul. But time, time is perhaps our most precious commodity. Because once you spend it, you don't get it back. See, we each have, and you know this, 365 days in a year for every year that we live, and 24 hours in each day, and only 60 minutes in each of those hours, just 60, and 60 seconds in each minute, and every minute of every hour, we try to fill up with all the things that we have to get done in a single day. We sleep, we eat, we work, we change diapers, we drive, we take the kids to school, we pick the kids up, we feed the pets, call your mom, change more diapers, walk the dog, buy the food, take the food home, cook the food, give the food to everyone to eat for dinner, clean up from dinner, change more diapers, get the baby to bed, lay down, and do it all over again the next day. And how many of us have been guilty of thinking if I just had two more hours of the day? Just two. I know I have. But you know what we do if we had two more hours of the day? We just fill it up with more of those things that I just said, like changing more and more diapers. We fill them right up. And then we wish for another two hours. Why? Because time is our most precious commodity, and it's also our most limited commodity. We only have a set amount of time in life. You can't save it up for a rainy day or let it collect interest or bottle it up and put it on a shelf and pull it out when you need a little extra. Time is exacted, limited, not guaranteed, which makes it incredibly precious. Which is perhaps why we are sometimes so hesitant to afford people our time. To offer it knowing that we will not get that time back. Because what if the person I give my time to doesn't reciprocate? Or what if they resent me, or what if it turns out to be a waste of my time? Or maybe even worse, what if a single act of kindness catapults me into a situation that requires more of my time and more of my energy and, and more investment, and goodness knows my plate's already full, so it's easier to not give them the time of day. Because my time is limited and valuable and not guaranteed, and whether I say it with my no or by simply turning a blind eye, they're just not worth my time. <coughs> of course, none of us would ever say that, right? We never tell somebody, you're not worth my time. But it's felt, isn't it? By the ones that we 
choose to walk by? I mean, surely the man attacked on the road and left for dead lay there wondering if, hoping that someone would stop and help him. And as he's laying there, he hears footsteps walking towards him, and he thinks, yes, this is my moment. Someone's coming to help me. Someone will save me, and I'll be helped. This is wonderful. And then he hears the footstep walk on by. But then, a little while later, he hears more footsteps, and, and this time, they're, they're coming closer. In fact, I can tell. He's right over me. I, I can't quite say anything. I can't open my eyes, but I know he's there. I can hear him breathing, and, and I can't tell him, help me, help me. But, but surely he sees me where I'm at, and he'll help me. And then those footsteps kind of back off. He can hear the rocks underneath his feet, and they get quieter and quieter until the man disappears as well. See, that man on the road didn't hear either one of those first two characters say, you're not worth my time. But don't you think their footsteps away were loud enough Their footsteps screamed those words loud and clear. But not so the Samaritan. And if we look to the Bible, to the Gospels, the life of Christ, not so Jesus Christ. Which, if you think about it, is actually ironic because Jesus, of all people, knew his time was limited. He knew he had actually less than a lifetime to accomplish everything that the Father had sent him to do. And every moment and every day was bringing him one day closer to the end of his time on earth. And he knew all of that. But even still, as busy as he was, Jesus lived his life constantly loving others, what I like to call, on the way. What do I mean by on the way? I mean that Jesus was never too busy to love others. Even when he was on the way to something else. In Mark 10, Jesus and his disciples were on the way out of town. When a blind man named Bartimaeus approached him shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people told him to be quiet because they say, Barnabas, he's busy, he's got things to do, places to be, just shh, just stop screaming. But he actually starts screaming even louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus calls him over and he says, what do you want? And he says, I, I, I want to see. And so Jesus healed him, even though he was literally on the way out of town. In Matthew 8, Jesus was on his way down the mountain from a full day of teaching when a leper approached him and asked to be healed, so he healed him, even though he was on the way. In Luke 4, Jesus was on his way to bed. <coughs> now, I don't know about you, but I like my sleep. 
and I, I love naps, but, but when it's time for, for the end of the day, and the sun's gone down, I'm in my comfy pants, I've got my glass of water, I've used the bathroom, I've brushed my teeth, the baby's already in bed. Um, if I were to hear someone come and knock on the door, I'm like on my way, like not just, oh, bedtime's coming, I'm on the way to bed. And someone knocks on my door and says, hey, um, Jessica, I know it's been a long day, I just was wondering, just, Turn the porch light off. Pull the curtains closed. Close the door. Come back in the morning. I'm on my way to, do you understand? I'm on my way to bed. This is not the time, like the worst two times, maybe first thing when I wake up, the second time when I'm on my way to bed. Because I like my sleep. Jesus is on his way to bed. In Luke 4, verse 40, it says, as the sun went down. That means it's bedtime. As the sun went down that evening, people throughout the village brought sick family members to Jesus. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed everyone. Now, when I read that verse, I can just feel Jesus' exhaustion. He's already been teaching all day. He, he just got home and healed Peter's mother-in-law because she was sick, so of course, I guess I'll, I'll heal her. And then, as the sun went down, can you heal me? How about me? Me too, I'm next. I mean, okay, I know he's God, but for Peter's sake, could you please let the man go to bed? He's tired. He's had a full day of ministry. But he didn't care. It didn't stop him from loving others. See, I start flipping through. I don't know about the rest of you. I flip through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I just read about the crowds that are constantly following Jesus. He literally couldn't be on the way to anywhere without people coming up to him. And I start flipping through and reading these stories and I'm exhausted by his empathy. I don't know how he does it, it's like he's God or something. But I think my favorite example of Jesus on the way love is found in the book of Mark. Mark chapter five, starting in verse 21. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, 
I'll be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter's dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Now, Jesus does go on to not only heal Jairus' daughter, but to actually bring her back to life. But imagine the resentment Poor Jairus must have felt upon receiving this news before that happened. See, we know Jesus went on to do that, and Jairus would soon, but before he knew what Jesus was going to do. Here's Jesus on his way. He's asked him, he said, yes, I'll go, I'll do it. And he's on his way to heal his daughter, his only daughter, his little girl. And before he can get there, this woman has the audacity to hold up the show. And Jesus stops and he meets with her in the middle of the crowds, literally pressing in around him. And he loves her. He, he speaks blessing over her. Which is beautiful when you picture that scene. But picture Jairus over here. Watching this scene. Picture him thinking, okay, uh, did you have to stop? Was it really necessary for you to stop? Because she was healed already, wasn't she? Why did Jesus have to stop? And, and maybe Jairus is over here watching Jesus stop in the middle of what he was doing on the way to heal his daughter. And Jairus is, is maybe standing there saying, maybe if you hadn't stopped, maybe my daughter would still be alive. I mean, I get it. You've had 12 years of dealing with this, but my daughter's only 12 years old. She's supposed to have a whole life ahead of her. Maybe if you hadn't stopped for her, my daughter would still be alive. But Jesus stopped on the way made time to love her. See, so Jesus had the most important work in the world to accomplish. 
yet he used his limited time to love others because he realized that that was the most important work in the world. And he was never too busy to love. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit, sometimes I let busyness creep in and press around me and I, I look at my to-do list and my sticky notes and my calendar and I walk into a week like this past week was for me and I think, okay, I've got a lot to do, I have no room for distractions, I've got to buckle down, Amos is going to watch Phoebe, I, I just got to focus, no room for anything else, I just, I just have to get everything done, I can't waste any time, feel the weight of that busy pushing it on me, and my heart rate rises just thinking about it, but the moment I get lost in my busyness and become too busy to love others is the moment I have forgotten my whole business of still being here on earth. Because why else did Jesus come if not to love and guide others towards his Father? And why else do I still exist on this earth if not to love as many people as I can towards knowing God the Father? And some of you may be thinking, okay, Jessica, that's great, but are you saying that I should just drop everything? Anytime anyone needs help, like, like a good neighbor, just I'm not saying that you need to be that and just like poof, pop up anytime anyone has need. But what I'm saying is that maybe some of us need a little breathing room in our schedules. Because it's hard to love when you feel smothered, right? No one likes to be smothered. When we're smothered by our schedule and our to-do list and we block things up back to back to back like a traffic jam, you know what happens in a traffic jam? Not love. People are angry. And people get annoyed. And then people start honking and swerving and yelling and gracing those around them with their most dominant, prominently located finger. It's hard to love when you're in a traffic jam. It's hard to love when your life is bumper to bumper. But if we have a little breathing room in our schedules, <coughs> We're able to love when the opportunity arises. See, instead of holding it and gripping the steering wheel with white knuckled hands, we're able to hold them open with our time and allow God to take and ask us to give when he prompts. Instead of having our eyes fixed on our phones and, and watching as people are texting, are you here yet, are you coming, are you all the way, and we're rushing out and watching the time click by, we can lift our eyes and we can see the opportunities to love others on the way. Instead of feeling stifled and, and smothered and, and packed in elbow to elbow with no wiggle room in our lives for love, we can have 
sensitivity for the nudging of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit says, hey, that person needs you to love them. And instead of hurrying and walking to the other side of the road, trying to get to where we need to go, we can have time to slow our feet to meet those in need of love. Or maybe even just time to walk across the street and meet a neighbor in need. See, a little breathing room can go a long way in helping us to learn to love others in the midst of lives. Because life does get busy. But when we learn in the breathing room moments, and we learn how to love others, then when we do find ourselves in the middle of the crowd, or on the way, we'll already know how to pause and stop and love. And our natural response will actually more and more become love. If time is our most precious and limited commodity, what better way to invest it than into that which Jesus deemed his most precious and important work, loving others? Because guess what? Their time is precious and limited too. And we are not guaranteed another day to love them towards the that we each 
were worth your time. Not only that, determined that we were worth your son's life. Father, now as we look to you, we thank you that you give us the time every single day to love others. Help us to hold our time with open and loose hands. Teach us to never see loving others as distractions or roadblocks, but rather as the most important work we have on earth to do. Thank you for the time that you've given us. Help us to use it to love those you've placed around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now would you stand and receive these words of blessing before you leave? I want you to just hold your hands out in front of you. Hold your time, your schedules, whatever this week holds. Father, would you bless each of these with open hands to receive guidance from you and would you give them the willingness and courage to hold their hands open so that you can use their time to bless others.